with a word of prayer. Dearest Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, your beautiful word, your true word. As we study it today, please fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we can understand it, not only in our minds, but in our hearts. May we be changed by it. Make us like our beloved Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In 1993, in Shropshire, England, Robert Hendy Freegard conned a college student, John Atkinson, telling him he was an MI5 agent tracking an IRA cell. Freegard convinced John that one of his roommates was a potential member of the IRA. And in order to get the two other girls living in the house to leave, Freegard instructed Atkinson to lie telling the girls that he had terminal cancer and that he wanted them to join him on a road trip to complete a bucket list before he died. Eventually, the bucket list charade fell through, and Freeguard managed to convince the women of the MI5 lie as well. They constantly changed their appearance and went from safe house to safe house. They were told their families would be in danger from the IRA if they stayed in contact with them, so they cut off all contact except to pressure their families into giving huge amounts of money for their witness protection program. It took a decade for Atkinson and the girls to realize the life they were living was based on Freeguard's lies. For Freeguard's unfortunate victims, a false view of who they were as targets of the IRA caused them to act in ways contrary to their nature, lying to friends, cutting off relationships with loved ones, and draining their families financially. This is a picture of the truth we see in our passage today. A proper understanding of who we are has implications for how we live. Or, more specifically, having been remade in God's image transforms how we are to live with one another. As Martin Lloyd-Jones says, what we need primarily is not an experience but to realize what we are and who we are, what God has done in Christ, and the way he has blessed us. This truth transforms the way Christians live, specifically how they live in relation to one another. Let's begin by taking a step back to see the ground that we've covered thus far in Ephesians. Paul began his letter to his beloved flock in Ephesus with a description of the new life that God gives to everyone who believes in his Son. He listed the spiritual blessings that are ours through faith. He wanted his readers to wrap their minds around their great inheritance. And from the new life, Paul transitioned into a description of the new society that has been wrought through Christ's great work at the cross. Believers are brought into God's very family. This family, the church, has been created out of a great reconciling, not only of man to God, but man to man. At this point, Paul shifts from imperatives or truths to indicatives or commands as he explains the outworkings of our faith. We began to look at these new standards three weeks ago as Paul called us to live a life worthy of the calling. And in today's passage, we see that being remade in God's image transforms how we are to live with one another. We'll look at our text in two divisions, the truth of who we are and living accordingly. So, what is the truth of who we are? Verses 17 through 24 shows us that for the believer, what we are now is starkly different than what we once were. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, 
in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in, Christ, is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The believers in Ephesus were surrounded by pagans, and in fact, many of them had been pagans before their conversion. In verse 17, Paul is reminding the believers that they should walk or live differently. But the term walk is more than just a synonym for live. Have you ever gone on a hike where you had to carefully place each foot? That is the image here. It is a deliberate step-by-step living which makes it a distinctive gait. Next, in verses 18 and 19, Paul shows the pattern of life lived in the futility of the mind for all those outside of Christ. Hardness of heart leads to ignorance, then darkening of understanding and alienation from the spiritually attuned life of God. And finally, a callous insensitivity takes hold, and they give themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. The term futility is the same as that used by Solomon in Ecclesiastes in his refrain, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Indeed, when stripped of our essential purpose in life to glorify God, what do non-Christians have to live for? Their greatest achievements are like the monument of Ozymandias in Shelley's great poem, whose inscription read, Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. And yet... Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Praise be to God, this is not the reality for God's people. Our lives have purpose, and just as God kept a a book of remembrance of the faithfulness of his people during the time of Malachi, our good works will likewise stand for all eternity. Paul traces the futility of thought that marks the unbeliever back to their being alienated from the life of God. This lays the culpability of their spiritual darkness squarely on their own shoulders. For as Romans 1, 19 through 21 states, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. Therefore, according to Romans 1.18, it is by willful choice that unbelievers suppress the truth in unrighteousness and live far from God. Although our post-enlightenment society sees reason as the primary driver of our hearts, Paul lays out the truth that it is actually the heart that directs the mind. If we are honest, we know this to be true. Think of Pharaoh and how clearly God made both himself and his will known through the plagues. Pharaoh's repeated going back on his promises and refusal to let God's people go were illogical and ultimately a reflection of his hardened heart. Here in Ephesians, the word hard is also used in our translation, and it is literally a word for a kind of marble. 
We see illogical, hard, heart-led decision-making in the world all the time. Even when unbelievers know the truth, they choose to ignore it or to desperately make up ways to discount it. This is most ardently done in relation to the truth of the gospel. For the heart in rebellion to God does not want to either admit that they are needy sinners, nor that God is rightly their Lord. Where does this leave the unbeliever? In a state of spiraling ungodliness, they are calloused to the prick of the conscience, and without the purpose of living for God's glory, they live for themselves. It is only logical that this combination would lead to the aim of fulfilling the flesh. But sin does not satisfy, and round and round it goes, with an ever more voracious appetite to find fulfillment from anything and everything that is not God. But this is not the reality for the audience of Paul's letter, and this is not the reality for us today if we are in Christ. In verses 20 through 24, Paul reminds the Ephesians of when he pastored them and taught them another way. Nay, he says it was Christ who taught them. It was not just another way they learned, but they learned Christ himself. They knew him intimately and dearly. Their minds were made new. They had been given understanding. They had been brought near to God. They had been made wise, and the eyes of their hearts had been opened. Hearts of stone had been changed to hearts of flesh. And while the Gentiles live in futility of thinking, the believers live by truth the truth that is Jesus. They, we, need to know that we have been remade, and being remade in God's image changes how we live with one another. In coming to himself, Jesus teaches that the old must be put off. To put off is literally to throw off, and fittingly so, because the old self is described as a vile, deteriorating garment. In Genesis, we see the first garments made to cover mankind's shame. This old self-garment, rather than covering the unbeliever's shame, exacerbates it. Meant to conceal, it is full of holes and shabby. It smells. Rather than protecting, it infects and irritates. It must be thrown off. This throwing off was a renouncing of their sin and the recognition of their need. Next in verse 23, the Ephesians were instructed to renew their minds. This is a rejection of the lies Satan first uttered to Eve and all the subsequent lies that try to distort the truth of who God is and what he has done. Renewing their minds was a cognitive and heart embrace of the truth of the gospel. Although I became a Christian when I was three years old, it wasn't until I was an adult that I realized I was responsible for my thoughts. And even though a thought may be true, it might not be something that should be dwelt upon. Indeed, 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, we must take our thoughts captive. In other words, even our thoughts are to be obedient to Christ. In Philippians 4.8, we are told to think about certain things. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable— And if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise. And Isaiah 43, 18 instructs us not to think about other things such as the past, or as we see in Romans 12, 3, not to think too highly of ourselves. My lack of diligence in this area led me to cycles of negative thought. 
We live in a world marred by sin, and if we only look at the injustice, hurt, failures, let down, etc., it leads to despair. For years, I struggled with depression, and while I know this may not be true of all who struggle with depression, one primary aspect of moving past my depression was diligently taking my thoughts captive and turning my gaze to my Savior and head to heaven. At the moment of our conversion, our minds are intrinsically changed. But like the Ephesians, we are surrounded by the world, which constantly influences us, whether we realize it or not. Therefore, we need to return again and again to the Word to renew our minds, to set before our mind's eye the truth, Jesus, his honorable fulfilling of all the promises despite the cost, his upholding of justice by paying the price of our sins, his purity as the lamb without blemish, his loveliness. Commendable? He is more than commendable. He is praiseworthy and excellent above all else. We are to think about such things. Finally, when our trust rested on Christ, we put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness. The language here harkens back to the creation account in Genesis. We were originally made in the image of God, but sin marred that likeness. How remarkable it is, then, that believers have been recreated in God's holy image. Last week, we studied Malachi, and we saw a great distinction between those who feared God and those who did not. It is the same here. It is not a gradation, but two completely different kinds of mankind. This is why Christ told Nicodemus that nothing less than a new birth was necessary. The old must die, and a new creation takes its place. The old man was in Adam, fallen and enslaved to sin, hopeless to escape, and hopeless in the ultimate misery that that life brings. But the new man has Christ as his head, He is freed from sin's control and freed to serve God. These three things the Ephesians had been taught, to put off the old, to renew their minds, and to put on the new, are infinitives, not imperatives. That is to say, these are not commands, but rather something true of the believer at conversion. And although in some sense we use the same pattern to address the remnants of our sinful self during this time of sanctification, Let's make sure that we are clear. Paul's argument is that we have been made new and therefore should not walk as the Gentiles do. Ian Hamilton in his commentary explains, loss of identity is a hugely dispiriting and debilitating crisis in a person's life. Constant exposure to the truth as it is in Jesus is imperative for healthy God-honoring living. Ladies, we cannot forget who we are. For being remade in God's image transforms how we are to live. Our first truth is, holy living flows from our identity as new creations. What part of your walk is not distinctive from the world? And what would it look like to deliberately, step by step, walk differently? This may look like praying over how to steward your leisure time, or planning ahead to avoid the gossiper in your life. What are you doing each day to renew your mind? What thoughts are you taking captive or making obedient to Christ? A 
On days when you don't have an opportunity to sit down with your Bible, get creative and listen to it as you exercise or drive. Meditate on a verse as you empty the dishwasher or brush your teeth. Now that we have a clear idea of the truth of who we are, let's follow Paul's argument in its logical conclusion of how we are to live accordingly. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. As I tried to wrap my mind around this passage, I wanted to find the logic of this list. Why these specific applications? Ultimately, two themes emerged, unity and holiness. Ian Hamilton explains, union with Jesus Christ is as radically social and relational as it is doctrinal. In fact, we cannot live out our faith in isolation. So many of God's standards are merely theoretical until put into practice in our interactions. Look again at the list Paul gives here. Speak truth rather than lie. Have godly anger rather than sinful anger. Be generous rather than steal. Speak beneficial talk rather than corrupt. Be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving, rather than bitter, wrathful, clamorous, and slanderous. All of these are necessary for preserving unity as well as personal holiness. So being remade in God's image transforms not only how we are to live, but how we are to live with one another. Another similarity between all these imperatives is that they follow the pattern of what we learned at conversion. Just as we were to throw off our old rotten man and put on the new holy man, we are now to continually throw off old sin patterns and put on new holy ways of living. This is a lesson Mikey has taught me repeatedly over the years that I've known her. If there's a sin that you are struggling with, Find the opposite holy action and prayerfully try to put it on as you take the other off. Now let us take a look at these specific ways to live and the reality of our new identity. One of my favorite electives in college was a course on the philosophy of language. And in the class, we explored the relationship between the written and spoken word and the reality that it represents. Also, we explored how we are able to communicate with one another. It's only as our words line up with the truth that we are able to understand one another, yet we have the freedom to say things that are not true. When we do this, it breaks down communication. It also breaks down trust. Therefore, when words are not linked with reality, community disintegrates. So God calls us to speak truth to one another to preserve unity. For God, the relationship between words and reality is different. In the beginning, he spoke, and the world was created. His words not only align with reality, but they created reality. We can't create with our words, but we do reflect who God is as we speak the truth. 
Next in verse 26, Paul addresses anger, saying, Be angry and do not sin. Admittedly, it is very hard not to sin in our anger. So it may seem easiest to steer clear of anger altogether. But this verse shows us that there is a place for righteous anger in the life of a Christian. What is righteous anger? Let's look to Christ for our example. In John chapter 2, Jesus drives out the moneylenders with a whip, saying, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Similarly, in Matthew 23, Jesus speaks seven woes upon the scribes and Pharisees for their distorting of the truth. We have also seen God the Father express the same burning anger over the misleading of God's people by those who were supposed to be spiritual leaders in Malachi chapter 2, verses 2-3. through three. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring, and I will spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. These examples of angry rebuke are certainly outside of my comfort zone, and I would be willing to bet yours as well. Yet commentator John Stott exhorts, When we fail to express righteous anger, we deny God, damage ourselves, and encourage the spread of evil. We need to realize that apathy towards sin is denying God's holiness. There's a spiritual battle at hand, and although it may be inconvenient, awkward, and even painful, there are times when we need to call out sin in appropriate anger over its affront to our holy God. Strange as it may seem at first blush to include anger in a list of things necessary to promote unity, spiritual wisdom confirms that apathy only leads to division. Again, being remade in God's image transforms how we are to live with one another. A good thing can easily be misused and become a bad thing. Whereas righteous anger is concerned with the preservation of God's name, sinful anger is concerned with ourselves. Paul also warns against letting anger of any kind linger. Over time, anger can cause roots of bitterness to grow. As our minds rehearse the offense over and over, it becomes harder and harder to love, forgive, and trust God. The line between righteous and sinful anger is a fine one. And Satan, that cunning adversary, is always on the prowl for opportunities to cause us to sin and bring division. Hence Paul's warning in verse 27 to give no opportunity to the devil. So sisters, be angry against sin, but do not sin. The next aspect of the old man that is no longer fitting for Christians is that of stealing, found in verse 28. As we are to put off stealing, we are to put on generosity. Stealing would, of course, include taking other people's possessions, but also other ways of cutting corners or using people for gain. Rather than steal, we are to labor. This harkens back to before the fall to God's original call upon mankind, or the creation mandate. God gave us the good gift of work to give purpose and fullness to our lives. And just as he delighted in his work of creation, as his image bearers, we are made to take delight in the creation of our hands. Indeed, this labor is qualified as working with our hands, and furthermore, it is to be work that is good. The doctrine of vocation 
is that God has a calling for each of us. It is a call to do work that blesses those around us. This beautiful doctrine elevates seemingly mundane labor to that of worship of God. Sisters, if God has called us to be a helpmate to a husband, raise children, or be a caregiver, steward our homes, or work out of our homes, let us do it wholeheartedly so that we can be a blessing and glorify God. In this way, too, being remade in God's image transforms how we are to live with one another. There's a fairy tale I read my children recently about two sisters, one good and one wicked. One day, the sweet and kind sister happened to speak tenderly to a fairy disguised as an old woman. For her sweet words, she was blessed with a gift of roses and diamonds falling from her lips every time she spoke. When her sister heard what had happened, she rushed off to find the fairy. The fairy had changed her disguise, so the wicked sister did not recognize her and spoke rudely to her. The fairy then cursed the sister with the burden of toads and snakes leaping and slithering from her lips every time she spoke. What would our words look like if they took on physical form? Paul has already told us that we are to speak the truth in love, and that qualification um, falls true here as well. Verse 29 commands, Let no corrupting talk come out of our mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Our words are to benefit those around us. Before we speak, we should ask ourselves, is it kind? Is it beneficial? Is it loving? Did you know Matthew 12:36 tells us that on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak? A sobering thought. Our words have such power. James describes our tongue as a rudder turning a great ship. And Proverbs 12:18 says, There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. May we, being remade in God's image, be transformed in the way we speak to one another. At this point, Paul brings the reality of the spiritual realm once again to the forefront as he warns us not to grieve the Holy Spirit in verse 30. What a picture of the heart of the third person of the Godhead that he so treasures the unity of believers that when we misuse each other with our words, it casts a shadow on his heart. Further, this is the spirit with whom we have been sealed for the day of redemption. We were sealed at the moment of our conversion, and the seal is a promise of our ultimate glorification. Like awkward teenagers, we live in a time of gangly potential called sanctification. Our spiritual minds haven't been able to keep up with the change in our stature, and we often trip up. It can be discouraging to know that we have been made new, but still see sin in our lives. What a gift is the seal of the Holy Spirit, assuring us that one day we will finally have nothing to do with sin. The Westminster Shorter Catechism describes sanctification as the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. This is exactly what our passage is about, throwing off sin, putting on righteousness, and being made more and more into the image of God. The Bible presents the work of sanctification as being something we are to do 
and at the same time, something that God does in us. The Holy Spirit is even now at work in us, teaching us, refining us, making us in the image of our Savior. Have you ever labored at teaching someone something? Have you poured yourself into teaching a class or reminding a child over and over to do something only to see them completely fail to heed your instruction? It is heartbreaking, not only in the futility of the labor, but also as your student experiences the consequences of their failure. This must be something of what the Holy Spirit feels with us when we speak in ways that divide and hurt the family of God. Paul concludes his list of examples of the Christian's new reality of holiness and righteousness with a list of six attributes to throw off in verse 31 and three to put on in verse 32. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice all have to go. Bitterness is a spirit soured by adversity. This is personified in the person of Naomi and the story of Ruth. After famine drove them from their homeland, her husband and two sons died, and she was left destitute, save for a seemingly good-for-nothing tag-along widow. So fully did she embrace her bitterness that she changed her name to Mara, which means bitter. This attitude of despair and deep-seated anger towards God's sovereign plan cannot be reconciled with a believer's faith in a loving and omnipotent God. Rather, sorry, wrath can be either a simmering hostility or uncontrolled brawling. Selfish anger is brazen discontent over what God has allowed. Clamor is the public expression of anger directed at others. Slander is ill-speaking of others with the malintent of undermining their reputation. Slander is one of Satan, that great father of lies, favorite tricks, and so believers should have nothing to do with it. Finally, malice is plotting evil against others. Even if they're not carried out, these meditations of the heart have no place in a believer. As we throw off these vile trappings, God has prepared garments of good works for us to put on. Kindness, tenderheartedness, and ultimately forgiveness. The word for kindness in the original Greek is krestos, which sounds very much like Christos, Christ. And just as the words sound similar, we are to see that our kindness is merely a reflection of the great kindness we have known from God. Luke 6.35 says, The Most High is kind to the unthankful and evil. Likewise, to be tenderhearted is to be compassionate especially towards sinners. In both of these positive characteristics, then we see the reality that because the Church is made of believers in the process of sanctification— Sin still exists, and we need to know how to deal with it. The picture here is of a community of grace, which leads us to the final indicative, forgive one another. It could be heavy-handed, this list of do's and don'ts, but it is not, because it is all based on the foundational impetus of what God has done for us. We have been forgiven. We have been forgiven. And the overwhelming truth of that great gift should set the pattern of our hearts towards each other. For being remade in God's image transforms how we are to live with one another. Our second truth is, living in holiness with one another flows out of the forgiveness we have experienced in Christ. What sin do you want to fling off? What good work will you put on in its place? 
What area that Paul listed is one you most need to be transformed in? Lying, anger, stealing, or destructive speech? How would meditating on God's forgiveness to you help you in this area? Meditation on the forgiveness that we have received helps humble us to gently and patiently bear with one another, even when we have been sinned against. In conclusion, as tragic as the outcome of living a decade under a false understanding of who they were, Atkinson and the girls have now found peace. They've realized that although Freeguard stole 10 years of their lives, they needn't give him another day in the form of self-loathing. Also, the undeserved welcome, love, and forgiveness of their families has restored them. This is the same reality we have experienced in the transforming work of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for giving us new life. What love that you have remade us in your image after we marred your image the first time. Thank you, thank you that you have promised that you will complete the work that you have begun in us. Help us to throw off the remnants of our old self that still linger, to renew our minds, and to put on garments of righteousness and holiness. May you be glorified as we live in unity with each other. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.